0: If you have your copy of God's Word, I do invite you to turn with me to the book of John, John chapter 4, for our passage this morning. And may our prayer indeed be that last line that we sang, that God would make His Word plain to us today. We have been in this chapter for some time. This is the third week of looking at this particular account that is, the woman at the well. We started at this at the beginning section of chapter 4, and I mentioned that most scholars divide this narrative into three sections. The first being titled, Water. Jesus comes to the well thirsty, as does the Samaritan woman looking for water. And as the two meet and collide, as these two unlikely people interact, Jesus reveals to her that what she needs, what she truly needs, is living water. For what she has now and what she wants now will make her thirsty again. It will not provide, it will not last, it will run out. But if she were to only ask Him, He would give her water that would last forever That led us to our next section, um, which took place last week, which we talked about related to worship or the truth of God. When we come to know the truth of who God is, we will worship him as he has called us to do so. And we see Jesus unpack or uh, unveil what is really going on in that section. He he shows the woman, He educates her on the truth of things she has thought to be true. And that ends with that that powerful concluding remark in, in verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He, revealing Himself to be the Christ, to be the Messiah, the Savior of sinners, the one who was promised to come. And we pick up this morning in verse 27 at the conclusion of this narrative on the section often titled, Witness. What happens When you come in contact with Jesus Christ, when you learn the truth about Him, who He is and what He came to do, you tell others. And that is what we're going to see in our text this morning. And I encourage you to ask the question as soon as I find it. How does knowing Jesus Christ change how I live my life today? We will ask the same question that our text answers. How will knowing Jesus Christ change how I live today? With that question in your minds, would you please follow along with me as I read for us God's Word? I would like to begin in verse 27 of chapter 4 and read through the 42nd verse. "'Just then His disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with a woman, but no one said, "'What do you seek?' or, "'Why are you talking with her?' So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, "'Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ?' Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see. The fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. This is the word of our Lord. Would you please bow with me? Oh Lord, this is your word and we are your people. You have indeed provided a harvest. This world is ready for you. There are many in our lives that we come in contact with on a daily basis who crave you, whether they recognize it as you they crave or not. Oh Father, I pray through this text and our time in your word and then in your word that you would make us bold ambassadors for the sake of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would do these things for our good and for your glory. Amen. For a lot of us we spent last week celebrating with family members engaging in activities, having time with friends. And while I don't know how many of you celebrate um, traditions, customs are unique often to families, I can tell you something that most likely happened that we all share in common. That is this, somebody... In your event, at your activity, in your family, with your friend group, had taken up a new job, a new hobby, a new experience, had watched a new movie, or read a new book. Whatever it is, is irrelevant. But what they did with it is what binds us all together. They went on a crusade to convince everybody else that they too should be excited about it. And if that's not the case for your Thanksgiving experience, think back and ask, were you the culprit? When we get together with friends and family members, we feel compelled to share what we're excited about. And and that which brings us the most excitement, the most joy commands the greatest amount of our energy. And the the closer that event has been to our lives, the more excitement we show. It bubbles to the surface. And I'm not saying this is a bad thing or a negative thing. But that which we care about, we will share with others. I would argue that our text this morning is a case study in that very idea. Jesus has shared the truth of the gospel with the Samaritan woman. And after he did so, we see her response. You see, that which she was most interested about, most anxious to let others know, most compelled to tell others, is Jesus is the Christ. And what we see in our text is the consequence or the conclusion of her excitement and her sharing it with others. And so a lot of ways this topic or sermon this morning is about evangelism. It's about sharing the gospel. And so we will see under that heading three truths or ideas related to it. Really the ultimate goal for any Christian should be to point people to Jesus. Our desire, our longing should be to point people to Jesus. We see that in our first section. Second, we have to understand that God is the one who provides the harvest. God is the one that provides. That's our second point. And then third, Jesus is the greatest tool we have in evangelism. We point people to Jesus, knowing He will provide the harvest, recognizing that He is our best asset. And so we read here the conclusion of this interaction and the consequence of it, beginning with our desire, our call to point people to Jesus. Now, as I say that, it's a bit disjointed in some ways, Because at this point in John chapter 4, we start running two stories at the same time. Up until this point it's been one-on-one, Jesus with the woman of Samaria. Jesus has been speaking to her while the disciples have been off. We know from the account they've been off buying groceries. But at this moment they come back. Verse 27 brings them back into the story. Which tells us Jesus must not have shared His plan with them. They come back and are surprised at what they find. Jesus is at this well talking to a Samaritan woman who He did not know, in their understanding He did not know, and you see this, this moment, and if you have watched old cartoons, it's that moment when something happens, a cliff is ahead. I'm, I'm thinking of um, a, a Wile E. Coyote, and he pumps the brakes, and you just see him grinding to a stop before the cliff. You almost feel that with the disciples here. They walk up, they're ready to share their, their lunch with Jesus, and they see Jesus talking to a woman, and it freezes them in their tracks. Now some scholars believe that that's the case because they are appalled. Why would Jesus talk to a Samaritan? I cannot believe He would address a Samaritan for anything, for any circumstance. Other scholars believe that it's not the fact that she's a Samaritan, but it's a woman. Culturally, it would have been very inappropriate to um, speak to a woman in public at this time of day, out in the open. And one of the reasons that that would have startled them so bad, go back to the patriarchs. Where did most of the patriarchs find their wives? At wells. And so the, the disciples show up, and they look out, and Jesus is talking to a Samaritan, which could have startled them, but he's talking to a woman, and they could have went, Whoa! Oh, does Jesus want a wife? Is He trying to be like His patriarchal ancestors? Is that what's going on here? We didn't know He wanted a wife. We didn't know He could have a wife. What is happening here? But either way, whatever the the cause of their surprise, we know what they did, which is nothing. (laughs) In fact, the, the, the text tells us quite plainly no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So whatever there, there was going on in their brains, they at least had enough sense not to let it go out their mouths. <laughs> That's a lesson <laughs> many of us could learn, right? Um, myself included. John Calvin says about this, The disciples did not venture to put to question, for we are taught by their example, If anything in the works or word of God is disagreeable to our feelings, we must not give a loose rein so as to have boldness to murmur, but ought to preserve a modest silence until that which is hidden be revealed from heaven. Notice how even in their shock, their surprise, their awe, they defer to the authority of Jesus. Jesus has not told us what He's doing. We will therefore not speak of it. They submit, they surrender to His sovereign will in His plan, and His design. And so regardless of it being a Samaritan, regardless of it being a woman, they come in surprise and yet they stop and say, hmm, let's find out what's going on. And then we break. We shift scene. We, we were looking at the disciples and now we go back to the woman at the well. What's going on with her? She's just heard Jesus say, I am the Messiah. The text makes a point to tell us that she runs with haste and leaves her water pitcher behind. Now that's remarkable. Why? She was there to get water. She forgot what she was doing. She was so excited, so eager to run back into the village, it scrambles her brain in such a way she lays everything down and runs to town and says to the villagers, "'Come, see a man who who told me all I have ever done. Can this be the Christ?' And we talked about last week, this woman has had four husbands and she's now on a fifth man." He's not her husband. That gets you known in town. Whether they were legitimate husbands that had died, she's known as the woman whose husbands always die, or she's floated from husband to husband to husband. The villagers would have known her. They would have known her by name. We don't, but they would have. Who does she run to? The very people she's avoiding. Does that not surprise you? Is Is it not remarkable that she's most likely at the well at noon, which is the worst time of day to get water, because everybody else is not at the well at that time to get water, and yet she runs to tell those that shunned her, come, you've got to see this man. He could be the Christ. He's told me everything I've ever done. And what's also interesting or fascinating about that testimony, what has she done? Things you don't want to tell people about. But she tells them, this Jesus knows my sin. He knows my shame. He could be the Christ. You've got to see this. And what happens? What is the reaction to this testimony. They went out of the town and were coming to him. This is her evangelistic opportunity. This is her moment. This woman becomes an evangelist for Christ and what does she do? She runs into town and leads them down the Roman road. No, no. She runs into town and exposits Romans chapter 8. No, she runs into town and starts with Genesis and starts with creation, with fall, redemption, and resurrection. No, you have got to come see this man. He knows everything there is to know about me. He could be the Christ. You see, I think this woman teaches us that one of the most powerful tools we have in evangelism and witnessing is to show others what Jesus has done for us. Why? Because you're the evidence. You are the proof. This is how I lived my life, but I've now met this man, and it has changed everything about my thoughts, desires, and actions. Come and see him. It's also remarkable that this is the way she evangelizes, because she doesn't save anyone. She doesn't bend them to prayer. She doesn't call them to respond in faith. She just says, you've got to come see this. It's not about her. It's about Him. I want to put two passages of Scripture for you uh, that that will increase our understanding of this. John 3.16, we read it a couple of weeks ago. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Now take that and let's combine it with Romans 10.14. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? We measure them together, we get this conclusion. We've got to tell people about Jesus. To believe in Jesus unto eternal life, they have to know who He is. You cannot believe in someone you do not know. And so the woman points to Jesus and the people respond. But we do so not trusting that we will affect anything. We do so with a sobriety, with an understanding. It's not up to us. It's up to God to give the harvest. And that's what we see here in our second section. And it, it may be a little bit jarring because the text keeps floating us back. It's, it's seen with the disciples. It's seen with the Samaritan woman. It's seen with the disciples. It's the scene with the villagers. But they're actually telling the same story. It's the same story going on from two viewpoints. For the, the disciples, the interaction between Jesus and the disciples give it to us from Jesus' perspective. And so in verse 31, we shift right back to them. And they're pleading with Him, Jesus, Rabbi, you've got to eat. And look, I, I can be sympathetic here. I don't miss many meals if I can help it. And if I had a a disciple or an intern or or someone under me and I told them to make sure my needs are met, I'd I'd want them to go, hey, 12 o'clock, time to eat. Come on. You know how you get if you miss lunch. So we don't want to criticize them too harshly here. They're seeing a need. They know he's hungry. They know what time of day it is. They know how far they've just walked. They know what's been going on at least to some uh, extent. And so it surprises them when Jesus says, Well, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And I love the, the interaction we get here. We, we get the, the mind of the disciples and they get together and go, Well, someone brought him some food then. Which is, which is a, again, we, we have to understand the context. That would have been jarring. Because what are they saying? The Samaritans, the ones that we despise, that we think don't know God, and we reject their teaching and their beliefs and their practices and everything about them, some of them must have been compassionate to our master and brought him food. That's, that's about as ridiculous as Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman. But they get there. They're like, well, he's talking to Samaritan women. Maybe they brought him food. <laughs> what, else, what, what will surprise us today? Right? Right? the thing we do need to notice with the, the disciples, and, and we don't want to criticize them for what they're doing, they're, they're missing the point. They're, they're missing the point. I, I listened to an interview this week with a Elizabeth Elliott, um, wife of a well-known missionary. She was talking about the death of her husband, and she was saying he's dead. And, and people ask, am I sad? And people ask, do I miss him? And I do, and he is. But they missed the point. They they are looking too closely. They've got to pan out. My husband's in heaven with Jesus. Why would I not be grateful for that? Why would that not bring me joy? Why why would that not bring me peace in a time of sadness? It doesn't do away with the sadness, but it gives me understanding. Well, the disciples, they're zoomed in too close. Jesus needs to eat. He hasn't eaten. What's going on? This is confusing. I don't understand. So Jesus does what? He backs up. I got a little bit of room. He backs up. He says, let me show you what's happening that you don't see. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then Jesus goes into a a, a very descriptive lecture on farming. Don't you say there's yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes, the fields are white with harvest. The one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Jesus is telling them a few things here. It is more important, it is better, it is more significant for us to starve and to do the will of God than to have full bellies and satisfy ourselves. Jesus says, my will, my desire, my joy is to do God's will and that supersedes my need for food. That's a tough one, isn't it? But Jesus is saying uh, something else as well. People are ready to meet me. People are ready To know me. People are ready to receive me. The harvest is ready to be picked. You say there's four more months. I say the corn is ready. Not much has changed from the days of Jesus, is it? We live in a world, in a time, in a society when things seem to be going to chaos. We watch the news, we read the paper, and it seems like there's awful things all around us. People are living in despair. What does that do but prime them to receive Jesus Christ? The harvest is ready, my friends. But it's even more beautiful than that. And and really, I think the heart of this lecture by Jesus on farming results with this one sows and another reaps in evangelism it can be quite discouraging if you've done it um, for any length of time Because you share that which you are passionate about, that which you are excited about, that which you know they need and will solve the greatest problem of their heart. And they go, thank you, and they walk away not having heard anything of what you said. And the longer you're in ministry and the longer you do it, the more discouraged and depressed you get. Because you find yourself laboring fruitlessly. You find yourself working into futility. You find yourself doing good, pleasing God for the benefit of others and they're not taking it. It it would be as if you drove out into the desert and there'd been a, a, a community of people that are dying of thirst. They're dying of thirst because they have not found water and you go out into the desert, you drive out there with a water truck. And you go, you need water to live. Here is water. And they go, you know what? You're right. And they turn around and go back into the desert. That's often what ministry, what evangelism feels like. And it can make us discouraging. But what does Jesus say? One sows and another reaps. I want to encourage you this morning, dear friends. That conversation may be what they need. To then a mile down the road, see a water faucet and go... They were right. We often don't get to see the eternal fruit of our temporary labor. Please don't be discouraged. We may not see it in our children. You know who I'm jealous of in ministry? RUF campus pastors. I love RUF campus pastors. Why? Because for most people, and I see this especially in young men, It takes till they're about 20 to 22 for them to get it. And the campus pastor usually gets to be the one to see them get it. And then they get the blessing of marrying them. (laughs) They were at your church. You taught them the catechism. You taught them to love Jesus. They were in Sunday school. And yet that pastor is going to be the one to do the wedding. Boy, is that frustrating unless you realize the Lord used those hard miles, those hard years, those hard conversations. Jesus is showing the disciple. remember we're talking about Samaritans, those who back in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah rejected God, and rejected His teaching, and rejected His people. This is a despised people. And Jesus is saying, I've been growing a harvest in the most rejected place, In Israel. And your job as disciples is to witness the harvest. Dear friend, don't be discouraged. If years of prayer seem to go unanswered, if years of witnessing seem to go fall on deaf ears, we do not know, and we may not know this side of heaven what the Lord is doing and will do through our efforts. But we have to recognize they're not our efforts, they're His. The last point I want us to see this morning, and it's one that we have to recognize and realize, and it's closely tied to the first two, Jesus is our greatest tool. Not our rhetoric, not our ability to debate, not our arguments, not our theological position. Jesus is our greatest tool in evangelism. And I can show it clearly from the text three different places. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. Jesus produced a harvest in the most unlikely place in the minds of the Jews. Samaritans, they got everything wrong. They've messed it all up. And because of the woman's testimony, her honest Plea, come, see this man who knows me. Many believed. Secondly, verse 40. Look at how it not only affected this woman, look how it affected the people. When the Samaritans came to Him, they asked Him to stay with them, and He stayed there two days. Jesus got a hold of this woman This woman ran into town and told her neighbors, her people she lived life with, they came to know Jesus and they begged him to stay. We've got to listen to you, Jesus. We've got to hear what you've got to say. We've got to understand what it is you have come to do. We need more. Not ever in my life have I preached a sermon and had someone go, you know, let's go get lunch and then come back and sit down and keep going. I've not heard enough yet today. Same thing happens with the story of of Eutychus in Acts chapter 20. Paul's preaching there and he preaches a 12-hour sermon. It goes past midnight because the people could not get enough. Jesus Christ changed the life of this woman. Jesus Christ changed the life of these people. And then thirdly, and, and most significantly, are the final verses. And I'll, I'll tell you how precious this, this passage here is to me. Often in ministry, you're, you're forced to pick a, a verse, a theme, a, an idea, a concept. What is, your, what is your ministry passage? I've been asked that so much, I picked one. It's John 4:42 This is what I my goal my dream my desire for ministry is They said to the woman It is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know this is indeed the savior of the world and jump up to 41 Many more believed because of His Word. Again, to go back to that idea of how tough it can be to be in ministry, you would want to be encouraged by this statement, but the villagers come to the woman, we appreciate you, but you're not needed anymore. (laughs) Thank you. We don't need you. It'd be easy to be discouraged by that news, wouldn't it? Unless you caught what she sa- what they said. Because of your testimony, we found Him. And now we know Him ourselves. My goal, my dream, my desire in ministry is to be forgotten. He's a pastor and a theologian. His last name is Zinzendorf. He was famously quoted as saying... Preach, die, and be forgotten. I don't want to be remembered in ministry because usually you did something really terrible. You remember what Aaron did? Don't be like him. You're in the textbooks for all the wrong reasons. But what I do want to have happen, my prayer, however long the Lord gives me and grants me the ability to preach and proclaim His Word, is to have this. If it be His will a couple of generations from now to have a conversation around a Thanksgiving table where children are lovingly talking about how much they know the Lord. And their parents and their grandparents are saying, you know, our pastor taught us to know and love the Lord. We are so glad that he did. Generational belief Because we committed ourselves to the Word of God. We trusted Him to do the work. We believed in Him and His Word and His truths. And we passed it down generation after generation after generation. If that was my legacy, I would love to hear these words. We don't need you. We found Him ourselves. And He indeed is the Savior. My friends, if I can encourage you in any way in evangelism, it would be, make that your heart's goal. Don't do it for numbers. Don't do it for fame. Don't do it for recognition. Don't do it for what you could get out of it. Do it because God is worth it. Do it because He got a hold of you first. Share the love of Jesus Christ with others because it has been shared with you. And trust in time. He will produce a harvest. That while we may not see it this side of heaven, it will come. And what does he say in the parable of the seed and the sower? That harvest often yields a hundred times result. May we not be discouraged. May we labor trusting in Christ. And may we accept he and he alone as the greatest tool we have. And may we praise God when we see a harvest such as this. And lastly, May we pray that He do so in our lives, in the life of this church, and in the lives of our children. Please let us pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, I do pray for Main Street. I pray for our children. I pray for Lowndes County. I I pray, Lord, for the people that are watching this online. Lord, I don't know what You're going to do with Your Word this day, but I know You've told us it will not return to You void. I know that you have promised us it will do that which you have set out for it to accomplish. And so, Lord, we plea with you, grow. Grow the seed. And Lord, help us to get excited about sowing it. Help us love you so much that we run to the very people who scorn us or hate us or know the deepest, darkest secrets about our lives. Lord, help us to sow trust in Jesus Christ that we love Him more than we love food. Or whatever good thing you have given to us. May Christ be our greatest desire. May we beckon others to see and to believe. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. We pray all of this in His name. Amen.